I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Battleground Live. I'm your host, Sean Parnell. I'm a combat veteran. I'm a New York Times bestselling author. And now I'm doing this live show every day at 5 p.m. because the great and fabulous Wendy Bell and her producer extraordinaire, Brock, convinced me that I could do a show. So here I am. Um, I Look, there's so much news that broke between our show last night and today, it's almost impossible to cram into a one-hour show. And what Brock and I were talking before we went live here that, you know, Wendy does three hours in the mor- morning on the app from 9 to 12. Um, if you're watching this broadcast or listening, you should definitely tune in to Wendy as well in the morning. But she'll got you covered from 9 to 12. I got from 5 to 6 or thereabouts. But the news cycle, what's crazy about this is that what Wendy covers in the morning and what we've been covering at night are two totally different things because the news cycle changes just so fast, it's almost impossible to keep track of. And that is part of the plan for the system, for the elites. They try to they try to inundate you with information. They try to drown you with news stories so that it's hard for you to find a pathway through that stuff. Well, part of my job or what, the way I see my mission is to help you navigate that stuff, give you the tools to stand on that pillar of truth and push back against the lies of the radical left so you can fight for this country, protect your family and preserve the Constitution. Period. End of story. Full stop. But before we get into the to the program, which is titled 101 Ways Democrats Steal Elections, because, that, by the way, every single day, it feels like there's another news story that comes out about how the Democrats are stealing, rigging elections. I mean, every single day. Absolutely crazy. Before we get into all that, I want to thank Deepwell. They're the founding partner of Battleground Live. They were with me from the very beginning. They took a chance on this show, and they've been with me every single step of the way. If you love this country, you love a strong economy, you love the lights on in your house and cheap gas in your car, make sure you thank an energy worker because there are forces at work in this country that would dismantle all of that. And if they are successful, send us a thousand years back to the Stone Age, millions of people will die. In fact, we're going to cover this later in the program. But Deepwell, thank you for your support. You are just one hell of a great partner. None of this is possible without you. So thanks. Okay, getting right to to the top line story. 101 ways that Democrats steal elections. That's the title of this episode. But before I get into that, I want to go into a Trump indictment update because this kind of stuff is just going to it's just going to blow your mind. So get this. Um, According to Fannie Willis, Donald Trump is being indicted for requesting that Brad Raffensperger requesting for Brad Raffensperger to engage in correct and quote. And this is directly from this is directly from the charges because I read them all last night after the show. Donald Trump's being indicted for requesting that Brad Raffensperger engage in whatever the correct legal remedy, okay, 
remember that correct legal remedy is to announce the true winner in Georgia because so much of this indictment, uh, Fannie Willis's indictment in Georgia is about Donald Trump challenging the 2020 election. Now, keep in mind, they're not going after the people who rigged the election and sowed mistrust throughout the process. They're going after the person that actually has questions about it. Donald Trump, and also in Georgia, 18 other people, which is absolutely mind-blowing. But right in her paperwork, she says that she has in one of the federal indictments, in one of the indictments, what she's saying is a conspiratorial crime that Donald Trump said, whatever the correct legal remedy is. Now, how can you be charged with conspiracy if you're doing whatever the legal remedy is? It's absolutely crazy. Um, Also, hot off the presses, uh, Fulton County DA, Fannie Willis, and all this just is just literally breaking it. We're bringing it to you right now at the top of the show. But Fulton County DA Fannie Willis has asked a judge to set a trial date for Trump on March 4th, 2024. March 4th, 2024. Now, I'll give you a second. If you got a computer in front of you, if you got your phone in front of you, throw that date, throw the day after that. So ask Google what March 5th, 2024 is. What will come up is Super Tuesday. One of the most important days for any candidate running for president is Super Tuesday. Many political pundits and consultants and people that are wired into politics will tell you that Super Tuesday can make or break a presidential campaign. Fannie Willis scheduled the trial for Trump, the Trump indictment in Georgia, to start one day before Super Tuesday. Now, this story comes on the heels of Judge Chutkin and beady-eyed, shaky special prosecutor Jack Smith, who is also a mouth breather. Jack Smith recommended to Judge Chutkin in the D.C. indictments that his trial, that that trial, I should say, take place on January 2nd. Now, that is just before the Iowa caucuses. So I don't know how anyone who's looking at the facts here independently can look at these dates. One of one of these trial dates that they asked for, it's it it what's the word I'm looking for? It it interrupts the Iowa caucuses. And the next one is right a day before Super Tuesday. You can't make this stuff up. So when you hear President Trump and you hear some other people out there saying that this is this is clearly election interference, I mean, how could you come to any other conclusion? I mean, it's clearly what these left-wing communist, activist, Soros-funded lawyers and DAs are doing. They want to stop President Trump from becoming the nominee. And folks, I've said it over and over and over again. Donald Trump is the only person who can win. He's the only person with a political base. Now, despite what some of the never Trump rhinos will tell you or other people that are working for other presidential candidates, Donald Trump's the only one with an actual base. He's the only one as an outsider that the system actually fears. Now, keep in mind, we are where we are in this country with a corrupt DOJ because President Obama corrupted the DOJ. The Clintons, both Bill and Hillary, what they did was figure out a way to make a ton of money being a politician, being a president, or using your office to to direct money to a foundation. And in the Clinton's case, it was the Clinton Foundation, and they made hundreds of millions of dollars into that foundation. Joe Biden, what he did was learn from the corrupt DOJ that was created by President Obama and the ability to get rich from the Clintons, and he created the Biden Family Fund. And you see all the corruption that, that, that 
the information that's coming out about the Biden mission, Biden administration every single day, he realizes that no one in that cabal of left wing politicians ever gets prosecuted because there's clearly two tiers of, of justice in this country right now. The point that I'm trying to make is that Donald Trump, the reason why they're doing to him what they're doing and indicting him on all these different states, and I want you to pay very close attention to this. The reason why they're doing this to him is because they know an outsider, you know, somebody that's not part of the Uniparty, somebody that's not a Democrat or beholden to the Republican Party, right? This is an outsider, can waltz back into that Oval Office and tear their entire corrupt system down, not just take down the Biden crime family, but also implicate Barack Obama and the Clintons. And that is just not something that any of those people want. Now, these are the people, Obama, Clinton, Bidens, they're the people that would run America. They want all the power in America. And what you're seeing right now is them in a last ditch effort to stop Donald Trump, whatever it takes. And they are willing to break any law and lie. And so I've, I've been criticized in the past. It's like, oh, you're just a guy on the Trump train. Oh, you just backed Donald Trump. No. I mean, of course I, I backed Donald Trump. Of course I do. Because he's the best president I've ever, in my whole lifetime. Actually made good on the promises that he, that he made to us on the campaign trail. Does he say the right thing all the time? Probably not. But that's not why. I'm not electing him for that. Okay? I'm electing him to be the, bre- the best president for the best country in the world. And I believe that he did that in his first four years in the office and first four years in the Oval Office. But Donald Trump is an outsider that can bring the entire thing down. He can he can implicate the Obamas. He can implicate the Clintons. He can implicate the Bidens and come hell or high water system is just intent on taking this guy out. And so I want to I want to talk right now about what I've noticed in the news cycle, and, I, and this is very important as well, and I want you to pay attention to this, um, of a shifting narrative. And what I mean by that is, you, if Fox News is a good example, but this is also taking place on other media outlets of, of anchors asking questions of either Democrat or Republican guests, mostly anchors asking Republican guests this question. It's like, well, look, Donald, these are, these are four different these are four different indict you know prosecutors lawyers four different indictments in different states now there's no i mean come on some of these charges might be bogus maybe some of them but not all of them right clearly donald trump is guilty just a little bit right that's the question and the reason why it's a bad faith question is because if one of those indictments a lot is is a lie i think it stands to reason that all of them could be a lie. In fact, to me, that's more logical than saying, well, look, some of these might be bogus, but some of them might be true. No, if one of them is bogus, it's likely that all of them are bogus because this is a complete political hit job. I just outlined when the, when these DAs, when these lawyers, when these special prosecutors were asking for the trial and they're doing it like to interrupt the Iowa caucuses, to enter, to conflict with Super Tuesday. I mean, it's clear what they're doing. So th- the question is like, are some of the, or some of this stuff has to be legit, right? No, if one thing is false, all of it is false. And so if you're a Republican out there or you're running a campaign and you get that question, t- 
turn it around on whoever's asking it and say, wait, wait, if one of these things is false, doesn't it stand to reason that all of them could be false? Because this is a complete and total political hit job that's putting our country at risk. I mean, it's just it's just an unbelievable, an unbelievable question. Be prepared to answer it. Okay, and if you're listening or you're watching this, I want you to be prepared to answer that question to people out in the public, because remember, you are an ambassador for truth, justice and the American way. You are an ambassador for this country and your job is is not to just, you know, not take action and, and, and sit in the shadows and be the silent majority. No, you're you. We can afford to be silent no more. So take the information that you're getting and getting on this show, go out into your community and spread the good word and fight the fight because this country needs you. Now, I took it on myself to go ahead and I got my little notes here to break down a Trump indictment versus Biden corruption timeline because we've been talking about, you know, is, is this political? Well, surely not all of it can be political, right? So. I'm just going to run through this. I got these notes right here in front of, in front of me. Um, I'm going to run through this here with you. So this is in March and April of this year. And we're going to compare the Biden family laptop from hell revelations versus Trump's first indictment. Okay. So on March 16th, the House Oversight Committee reveals the Biden family payments from the Chinese energy company. On March 16th, that happened. Two days later, on March 18th, Trump says on social media that he'll be indicted in New York City by Alvin Bragg, corrupt DA up in New York City, source-funded DA. Now, April 4th, so this is March 18th, Trump says he's going to be indicted. On April 4th, Alvin Bragg indicts Trump on the bogus hush money stuff. You remember that? So just right after. So check this out. Flash forward to June. We've got Biden bribery allegations and a plea deal. This happens on June 7th. And specifically what I'm what I'm talking about is the FBI released documents alleging that the Bidens took 10, a $10 million bribe from Burisma. Remember the Ukrainian energy company that was paying Hunter Biden like 80 plus thousand dollars a month for God knows what um, for being a mouth breather. That's that's the only thing he's good at. Oh, and sniffing, sniffing cocaine, of course. But um, so t- Biden's took a $10 million for bribe from Burisma. And you remember the owner of Burisma said and it was caught uh, or heard in a coffee shop saying, uh, five million bucks for one Biden, five million bucks for another. This happened on June 7th. OK, the very next day, Trump's second indictment on June 8th, Jack Smith indicts Trump in Mar-a-Lago secret documents case. Can't make this up, folks. All right. It's July. July 26th. Do you remember? This just happened. Hunter Biden's sweetheart plea deal was rejected. The very next day. <laughs> The very next day after that massive story, July 27th, Jack Smith adds more charges to the Mar-a-Lago documents case. Again, folks, can't make, can't make this up. Anyone who tells you that this nonsense is not strictly political persecution of the front runner for United States president, they're either stupid, have their head in the ground, or just outright lying to you. All right. So still July, different location. All right. We're in Washington, D.C. now. This is the January 6th indictment. So Devin Archer on July 31st, Devin Archer interview. Archer testifies that Biden was on 20 plus phone calls with Hunter Biden's business partners. Okay, Trump's third indictment the very next day. So the, the Devin Archer interview happens on July 31st. The very next day on August 1st, 1st, Jack Smith indicts Trump 
for January 6th. The next day. Okay, so now it's Georgia. Now we're talking about stuff that just happened. The FBI transcript. On August 14th, the GOP releases a transcript from the FBI agent involved in the Hunter Biden investigation, which corroborates our IRS whistleblower testimony that the Secret Service tipped Hunter Biden off that he might be being investigated. Okay, that was on August 14th. Trump's fourth indictment. When did that happen? On the exact same day. (laughs) Come on. Fannie Willis, the Fulton County DA, charges Trump and 18 others in Georgia election probe can't make this up. Anytime a massive story about corruption breaks out or hits the newswire about the Biden family crime syndicate, they try to shift the news cycle to focus on some bogus political persecution of Donald Trump. Absolutely crazy. Can't make it up. So now we're about a week away from the Republicans first debate. And as of right now, Trump isn't debating. And he goes around to every rally and says, well, should I, should I debate? Should I not debate? And the crowd always tells him, no, you shouldn't debate. And, and Chris Christie was on Twitter calling Donald Trump a coward for not de- debating. But let me give you my perspective on this. I, I don't think that Donald Trump should debate. I mean, first of all, I mean, new polls came out today that had Trump up by 40 over the second person, which is Ron DeSantis at 14%. And that was just in one in one poll because Vivek is actually ahead in Ron DeSantis and some of the other polls that came out today. But I don't want to I don't want to like get too deep in polling right now. I want to talk to you. Keep keep on this debate stuff because I think it's important. Why would Donald Trump go on a debate stage with moderators that will be hostile to him with 15 other candidates that will be hostile to him? None of those candidates are in strike are in striking distance of President Trump. They don't have a snowball's chance in hell to beat him in the primary. They just don't. I mean, now look, anything could change. Okay. But as of right now, no one's catching Trump in the primary. Just just that. Just it's just true. Now, here here's what I want you to take away from this. We already know how Donald Trump feels on everything. He's on Truth Social telling us every day. In interviews telling us every day. He debated in a 2016 primary, did every single debate, answered every single question, had hostile candidates coming at him from every direction. And then he was president, answered questions for four years in the White House from an unbelievably hostile press. And then he ran for president in 2020 and debated Joe Biden, I think twice. So we know where Trump is on a lot of this stuff, you know? And so my, my, my question to the other candidates is like to DeSantis and Chris Christie, it's like, I get it. You're calling Trump a coward, but, but we don't know anything really about you. Like you've not run the gauntlet like president Trump has. You've not gone through what he has. You haven't had to deal with a hostile press for four years in the White House. You didn't go through all the debates debating debating hostile Republican opponents and then debating a Clinton, which, by the way, this doesn't get talked about enough about President Trump in 2016 beating a Bush and a Clinton in the same cycle, like two American legacy political families, not a small feat. Um, but my point is, is that Donald Trump's already been through the ringer. You haven't. You should probably debate to give us a sense of where you are with some of these positions. And you're all going to talk about Trump anyway. That's, you know, Trump is going to be the topic of 
the debate almost the entire time. In fact, I want to hear why you're still in this race, why you haven't united around Trump in the face of these unbelievable political persecutions, because I'm telling you right now, if they do this to, to Trump, they're coming after the rest of us. <laughs> Authoritarian regimes rarely use this power only once. You bank on that. Bookmark this episode because it's coming. I want to hear why they're still in the race when they don't have a snowball's chance in hell to win. And I want to hear why they're attacking Donald Trump and why they're not speaking out more on these indictments. In fact, if you saw DeSantis' statement, and I'm not trying to bag on DeSantis, thought he's thought he was a great governor in Florida, but his drop in the polls has been kind of unbelievable. And his statement condemning these, this latest indictment, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to say it, but it was weak. He said, first of all, he's a lawyer and didn't even read the indictment. Like, so why are you even responding to it? You don't mention Trump at all, not once, not by name during the entire, your entire response. I mean, now there is like, there is an unspoken rule that if you're running a political campaign, you don't want to mention your opponent's name, but it's Donald Trump. You could show a picture of Donald Trump to somebody out in the middle of nowhere in Afghanistan, and they would be able to tell you that it was Donald Trump. So everybody already knows who Donald Trump is. And, and the fact is, the fact is this, it, he is the story right now. What they're doing to him is offensive to me because it's, it's Donald Trump's just a figurehead. What they're doing to him is a message to you. Donald Trump represents millions of Americans, millions, 75 plus million people voted for that guy in 2020. What they're doing to him is a direct insult to you, to us, to we, the people. And we have to stop it. And we can't afford Republican candidates that don't understand what time it is. And I've said this over and over and over again. I am tired. I am tired of strongly worded letters. I am tired of Republican committee hearings that go nowhere. In fact, I've waited for the past 24 hours to see what Republicans would do in the, in, in the wake of this next round of bogus indictments. And hell, they haven't responded at all. Maybe a couple of uh, strongly worded tweet, maybe a letter here and there. They haven't taken any action to defund Jack Smith, to defund New York City, to defund Atlanta. They haven't they haven't said that they're going to hold up any uh, of Biden judges. They haven't said any of this stuff. They did not said that they were going to push back at all. And in fact, because they haven't pushed back at all, you know, you have Katie Hobbs, who, you know, mouth breathing governor of Arizona, least popular governor in America, who just came out today. And I saw a soundbite before I went live saying that she supports an indictment of Donald Trump in Arizona for questioning the election in Arizona. It will not stop. These political persecutions will never stop until Republicans fight back, until we put the Democrats on the defense. Impeach Joe Biden. Impeach Merrick Garland. Cut off funding for Jack Smith in New York City and Atlanta or any place in this country where there's a radical DA Soros funded prosecutor who is ignoring the crime in their cities and politically persecuting Republicans. Why hasn't a Republican DA or a Republican attorney general in a, in a deeply red state impeached Mayorkas for human trafficking, impeached Joe Biden for human trafficking? Why haven't we done anything? Absolutely drives me crazy. 
And that takes me to the next story, 101 ways that Democrats steal elections. Huge story broke um, yesterday. Okay. Huge story. Uh, it's from a guy. Let me hear, let me get his name here. Uh, Parker, Parker Thayer. Parker Thayer is with Capital Research Organization. Uh, and basically what he found was a massive scheme called Everybody Votes, who was founded by a guy named John Podesta, Sam Bankman's Freed's mother, the, you know, the disgraced, you know, Bernie Madoff of political contributions, the guy that's just getting put in prison yesterday for making for witness intimidation. Uh, this this organization, Everybody Votes, is classified as a 501c3 charitable organization. During 20, the 2020 election, let me just go ahead and read read to you the beginning of Parker Thayer's story. Just bear with me here because this is important. His investigation reveals the shocking true story of the Everybody Votes campaign, the largest and most corrupt charitable voter registration effort in American history that may have decided the 2020 presidential election and could decide 2024, commissioned by Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta, funded by the Democrat Party's biggest donors and coordinated with cutthroat Democrat consultants. The Everybody Votes campaign used the guise of civic-minded charity to selectively register millions of non-white swing state voters in the hopes of getting the Democrat vote out for a 2020 presidential win. And it worked. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you are classified as a 501c3, you cannot partake in brazenly political activities. It's illegal. And the way that this was pitched to billionaire Democrat donors, and you know the people that I'm talking about, because the people that have given to this this um, Everybody Votes organization, people like Warren Buffett, they're people like George Soros. I think right off the top of my head, George Soros gave $10 million to this organization. This organization raised something like $198 million. And this doesn't count the Zuckerbucks that were poured into these swing states that private money poured into swing states. And the reason why that's important is that this money was not appropriated by governments in in, in our each respective swing state. They were given privately in heavily Democratic areas to increase Democrat voter turnout in 2020. That's This $198 million number doesn't even include the millions of dollars of Zuckerbucks that these swing states had to rig and fortify the election. And again, if you don't like the word rig or you don't believe what I'm saying, go, go fact check me on your own. Look this stuff up. Go look at the shadow campaign that changed the course of history in 2020. It's a, it's an article written by Time Magazine. They said that they didn't they didn't rig the 2020 election. They fortified it. Well, this is how they did it. And they did it through voter registration. They had a 501c3 pitch specifically to their donors, saying, "Hey, look, rather than giving to a super PAC or even to a candidate where you can't write off your contributions, you can give to everybody votes because it's a C3. And if you hey, you write off 10 million dollars." Every billionaire in the country is looking for ways to write things off on their taxes. And they found a great way in everybody votes. And they use the whole guise of, oh, we just want to help register people of color and people who are marginalized by the system. And, you know, which if if this wasn't brazenly po- political, right, funded by left wing billionaires run the executives on everybody votes, they're all hardcore left wingers. John Podesta ran Hillary Clinton's campaign. John Podesta was deeply involved with Barack Obama's presidency. John Podesta was just in the White House today. We'll get to that in a second. But 
every single person, to include the consultants that helped get out the vote in these swing states, were radical left partisan Democrats doing this kind of stuff with a 501c3, classifying it to the IRS as a 501c3 and allowing these billionaires who swayed, helped rig and steal an election to write off all that money. It's illegal. It's not right. And so their mission of this 501c3 is to help register people of color. I want to read you this from the article. Uh, his invest in, uh, investigation, Parker Thayer's investigation, also proves that the campaigns, so when he's talking about the campaigns, talking about everybody votes, also proves that the campaign's supposed concerns for civic participation of underrepresented communities were nothing more than a convenient lie. Unearthed drafts of the Everybody Votes campaign's original partisan schematics proved that the campaign was designed to win elections first and worry about civic participation later. They didn't care about helping underrepresented communities vote. They cared about winning. Come hell or high water. It's all the Democrats care about. Changing the electorate's racial composition was only ever a secondary concern. Folks, this, this, is, this is a huge story. And you'll notice that no one's even talking about it because this stuff is complicated. But this is what Democrats do, okay? They register voters and they dump tens of millions of dollars into registering these voters. Now, this is real important. Republicans don't have anything like this. We should, but we don't. Use Pennsylvania as an example. Democrats in this state, as of right now, have almost a 400 plus thousand voter registration advantage. 400 plus thousand, which means a Democrat in in the critically important swing state of Pennsylvania can win a statewide race and never receive a single Republican vote. Now, since 2020, since that election was stolen, and I'm telling you, I saw it firsthand. I ran for Congress in Western Pennsylvania in PA 17 in the most important swing district in the entire country, bar none. Because as PA 17 goes, so does the rest of the state of Pennsylvania. And I watched what they did there. I watched them stop the count in the middle of the night. I watched the Pennsylvania Supreme Court remove every ballot security measure that there was. And by the way, it was the first time we ever used in this country, no excuse mail-in voting. And the moment that that law was passed, Democrats promptly removed any semblance of signature verification, any semblance of a postmark requirement, any semblance of a deadline for those votes so that those mail-in votes could be delivered to mail-in drop boxes in heavily Democrat areas <laughs> up to a week, two weeks, three weeks after election day. Why is this important? Because when you stop counting on election night, you give the Democrats or your opposition the time in space to play catch up. They see what the margin is. And then because there's no signature verification, because there's no postmark requirement, you've got these Democrat charitable organizations that I just told you about. They're out there finding these registered voters. It doesn't matter if the person that they registered is the person that sends in the ballot. Democrats are chasing down those ballots and they're dumping them in drop boxes and they're doing everything that they can to fill the gap between election day voters the, the difference in election day votes and their deficit and how far they're down. That's why when people went to bed on election night and saw President Trump up a lot. Now, of course, that that lead was going to narrow because Democrats had more mail in ballots that were already submitted than Republicans did. But that's why there were such massive sways over the week, two weeks after election day. 
It's because the Democrats, once counting stops and counting just didn't stop in Western Pennsylvania. Remember, it stopped in Georgia with the water main break. It stopped in Wisconsin. It stopped in Arizona. All swing states stopped counting and they didn't start counting the next day. I think in, in Western Pennsylvania, voting took place on Tuesday. They stopped counting. They didn't start counting again until Friday. What do you think they were doing those four days in between? They were looking at how many votes that they needed. And it's reports like this. The reports that exposes this corrupt voter registration charity that helps them register votes. You've got Democrats to the, that are funded to the tunes of tens of millions of dollars on the ground chasing these ballots. And you've got the Supreme Court and our judicial system in on the process as well, removing any safeguards to allow these people to chase down the ballots, deliver them at drop boxes, drop boxes that were funded through private funds and Mark Zuckerberg. Those votes are counted on election day and you saw the end result in 2020. And guess what, folks? Guess what? This organization, this Everybody Votes, already has job postings on their website for people, employees, swing state directors that they need going into 2024. Anything? Republicans doing anything about it? Have they filed a single lawsuit? <laughs> they better. I mean, this and this is this is my problem with Republicans. When I just got done saying that they don't fight enough. They're aloof when it comes to this stuff. They're focused on raising money and running traditional campaigns while Democrats are focused on winning elections, rigging elections, using the system to their advantage. Republicans here, again, say this again, bookmark this time. Because Republicans are asleep at the wheel. And again, this story comes on the heels of a story that we broke on uh, the Gateway Pundit broke, but that broke when I was hosting the Wendy Bell radio program last week of massive 2020 voter fraud uncovered in Michigan, including an estimated 800,000 ballot applications sent to non-qualified voters. I mean, this this was a bombshell of a story that dropped last week. Now, this this week with everybody votes and corrupt charitable organizations help register voters is all this stuff tied together. I don't know. Only time will tell. 101 ways that Democrats steal elections could be 102 days, 102 ways tomorrow. So moving right along, folks, uh, you're watching the show. Please be sure to subscribe should have mentioned that at the top of the hour, but also rumble. There's that little green thumb there underneath uh, rumble because people who like pay attention to this stuff tell me that it's very important. Rumble pays attention to it and it helps this show. And if it helps this show, it helps, it helps you all uh, be better ambassadors for truth. Uh, and I want to just take a second to thank Cabot guns, who is also a, a proud sponsor of the show. They've been with us since the very beginning before or even very first episode, best guns, in the country, 1911, 45 style pistols. They're the best shooting guns in the world. The Rolls Royce of 1911s. Go check them out. Uh, we're really, really grateful to have such a strong Second Amendment supporting company behind this show. Um, and we're just grateful, grateful to have you all. Um, that brings us to climate change and carbon credits. Now, anyone who's been paying attention to climate change, and this narrative over the decades, you'll see that they've been wrong about every major prediction that they've ever made over the last 50 years. Completely, totally wrong. 
You, I think you can pull up Time magazine covers that talk about the devastating effects of global cooling in the 80s, and then it became global warming. And then there's videos out there. I watched a video. We don't have it for you today, but I might bring it to you tomorrow of Al Gore out there talking about, well, chlorofluorocarbons, and there's something that's going to open up over the United States and the sun will shine real bright. Remember that? Like when you were in school, chlorofluorocarbons and the ozone layer deteriorating? Well, that, that didn't happen either. And then when that didn't work, it became uh, global warming. And when that didn't work, because I remember Greta Thunberg and all those people would say that the earth was going to be, you know, in 2018, she said the earth wasn't going to exist in five years. And when that didn't work, it became climate change. So we all realize now, I think anyone who, again, who cares about the facts, cares about the science is actually paying attention that this entire agenda is simply about control. And we learned today, here's something that's also really interesting. And all these people are tied together. John Podesta was in the White House today. He's a senior advisor to Joe Biden. Now, again, don't forget, creepy John Podesta was heavily involved in Barack Obama's presidency. He was heavily involved in Hillary Clinton's campaign. He's heavily involved in the campaign of Everybody Votes. And now he's a senior advisor to Joe Biden in the White House. Who the hell is this guy? I'll tell you what, he's super, super creepy. But I think we know, I think we know, you know, who's running the Biden administration behind the curtain while Biden's over in the corner gumming pudding. It's guys like John Podesta who've been involved since the very beginning, since Barack Obama ran for president. Guys like John Podesta have been there. And John Podesta was back in the Oval Office in the White House press briefing room today uh, being his creepy self. Uh, let's go ahead and listen to what he had to say. We have to cut the carbon pollution that's driving the climate crisis. And that's what the Inflation Reduction Act is all about. So the Inflation Reduction Act, wait a second, because I here I was told that the Inflation Reduction Act was supposed to be about reducing inflation, helping Americans. But what John Podesta did is spend most of his time in the White House briefing room, and I watched it for you so you don't have to, explaining how the Inflation Reduction Act is just a massive piece of climate legislation. It's absolutely ridiculous. And so we just got done to explain, I just got done explaining to you about how climate change is a complete scam. And this transition to green energy, all it does is empower our enemies. All it does is crush our fossil fuel in industry, our energy industry here. All it does is make your life more difficult. All it does is drive your energy costs through the roof. All it does is make it more difficult for you to drive your car. There's a study that we talked about last week on the radio. Something like 41% of people have cut down on driving because it's just so expensive. And it's because of creepy little losers like John Podesta working behind the scenes. They're the ones that are causing you this pain. And what he just got done telling you is that the Inflation Reduction Act had nothing to do with reducing inflation. Well, of course, we know that because inflation has been driven up to historic levels precisely because of these bills called the Inflation Reduction Act and the runaway spending in Congress. But John Podesta went on in creepy. Uh, wait, a creepy John Podesta went on from the White House press briefing room. Listen to this. Your area is climate change. And with all the weather events that we've been having, of course, now the disaster is even putting aside perhaps what's happening in the Hawaii. Do you think the American people get it? 
about what's happening. You think they understand about what's happening. Put, a, put aside the politicians, too. Do you think they're getting it? I think the public not only gets it, I think they're feeling it. If you're experiencing temperatures above 110 degrees for 31 straight days in Phoenix, you know something's amiss. Now, the politicians could argue that this is just some natural, as, as some of the members of the Arizona House of Representatives have argued, well, this is just natural variation. But I think the public knows that that's not true. Do you think the public knows that that's not true? <laughs> I don't know about that, buddy, because climate change, it's not about the climate. If these people cared about the climate, they wouldn't be pushing electric vehicles, which which I think they said something like you have to drive for damn near 20 years to 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 nix out the amount of carbon it takes or the amount of emissions that it takes to actually manufacture them. Do you know what it look at some of these stats to manufacture an electric V each electric auto battery. You must produce 25,000 pounds of brine for the lithium, 30,000 pounds of ore for the cobalt, 5,000 pounds of ore for the nickel, 25,000 pounds of ore for the copper. Accumulated, you dig up 500,000 pounds of the earth's crust for just one battery. And the career politicians have never thought about where the energy comes from to charge those batteries. Newsflash, it ain't magic. These batteries don't charge themselves. It's from natural gas. It's from oil. It's from our ability to be a producer of fossil fuels. Now, within four years of President Trump, actually within one year of him being in the Oval Office, we were a net energy exporter. We were not just dominant here in America. We were dominant all across the globe. And this is why I talk about the energy industry so much, because it's inextricably tied to a strong economy and peace and economic stability in our daily lives. It's tied to everything. And so green energy, it, you know, look, I'm for an all of above approach. I am. But these green energy companies, they require government subsidies. So they compete on an unequal, an unequal playing field. And I also don't like the look of all of these windmills and everything else. And, and also these windmills that are out in the middle of the ocean, you see stories break every day of how now whales are dying in high numbers because of these windmills that are installed out there that are having a direct impact on their environment. So it's not about the earth. It's not about making the world a greener place. It's not about clean air and clean water to these people. It's about control. It's about control. You, you are the carbon that they want to control. Not to mention, not to mention that all of these these rare earth minerals and these rare these rare minerals are you know China first of all are one of our greatest geopolitical enemies they have market share of all of this stuff but they use slave labor and child slave labor to, to mine for it there and also in Africa it's 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 not only is it terrible for the environment it's terrible for humanity and their goal is net zero the whole idea that we should be net zero, that there should be no cars that are emitting, emitting greenhouse gas by 2035. There's already a law in the books of California that says that Joe Biden, the Biden administration is pushing for that as well. It's completely insane. But I want you to watch this video from the founder of Greenpeace. Now, this guy's name is Dr. Patrick Moore. 
The bottom line is, is that net zero policies will result in a genocide of half of the world's population. Half. Listen to what he has to say. Founder of Greenpeace. You're one of the founders of the most famous environmental organization in the world, and you think the Green New Deal sounds terrifying. Tell us why. Well, because it would be basically the end of civilization if 85% of the world's and also 85% of the U.S.'s energy in the form of coal, oil, and natural gas were phased out over the next few years, like 10 years. We do not have anything to replace them with. Yes, if we went into a crash course of building nuclear reactors, we could replace them for producing electricity, but that isn't going to happen because the Greens are against nuclear and they're even against hydroelectric dams, which at least is renewable, but they don't support that either. So basically they are opposed to approximately 98.5% of all the electricity that we are using and a, nearly 100% of all the vehicle and transportation and ships and planes energy that we are using. So I just, when, when I tweeted the other day and had a huge response, over three million impressions on Twitter, when I said you don't have a plan to feed eight billion people without fossil fuels or get the food into the cities where it's needed, that requires large trucks. And there's not going to be any electric trucks anytime soon hauling 40 tons of food into the supermarkets where the people in the cities probably think it originates in the supermarket, but it does not. It's coming from farms out in the country where a few million people are growing the food for all the rest of the population. And if we banned fossil fuels, first agricultural production would collapse in a very short period of time. There's these things called tractors and they use fuel and all the other implements on the farm. And then there's the transportation. So when, when, when you have no fuel, how do you get the food to the center of New York, to Manhattan, where AOC is from? You don't. Then the people there will begin to starve and that will spread out as a rot from the center of the metropolises all across the country and half the population will die in a very short period of time. And as I also pointed out, there wouldn't be a tree left on this planet. Say this was a worldwide thing, because the United States isn't going to ban fossil fuels if no one else does. But say the Paris Agreement came into effect fully all around the world and everybody banned fossil fuels, there wouldn't be a tree left on this planet because that would be all there was for fuel for heating and cooking as they did in the old days when there was hardly anybody on the planet compared to what there is today. So just that one point, never mind the insanity of banning aircraft and fossil fuel using vehicles. Half the population will die in a very short period of time. What if, now I know this sounds extreme and crazy, but these, this is what these people say. You hear people from the World Economic Forum talk about this. You hear uh, these climate change alarmists saying that the world is overpopulated and that human beings are contributing to climate change and that the world's going to be destroyed in the next two, three, four, five years. I mean, they're always wrong, but the, this is what they say. What, what if the people who are driving this agenda, what if they are using climate change to reduce the world's population? I mean, that's a pretty evil thing. But when you even have the founder of Greenpeace out there saying that if these people got net zero, got what they wanted, that the end result would be 
human suffering on a level that we've not seen ever in generations. It's hard to draw any other conclusions. Kamala Harris talked about clean energy recently in one of her speeches. Now, I get it. Most of the time, she's cackling and throwing together word salads, and we really can't understand what she has to say. But let's give her grace on that stuff, and let's listen to what she has to say about clean energy. When we invest in clean energy and electric vehicles and reduce population, more of our children can breathe clean air and drink clean water. We invest in reduced population. More of our children can breathe clean air. So if you're if, if we don't have as many people alive, well, that's good for your children, right? I'm telling you, this stuff is crazy. These people are crazy. <laughs> like, What's the climate change agenda really about? It's about control. It's about moving around money. It's about saying, hey, since, you know, China and India and you can't possibly adhere to the rigorous climate change standards that we have here in America. So what we're going to do is cut you billion dollar checks to help you get up to that standard. But the reality is China doesn't care. India doesn't care either. They'll take our money all day long. But China's putting in two coal fired power plants every single week. China is stockpiling their oil in their strategic petroleum reserve right now as over the last six months, Biden has diminished ours. Our greatest enemies see the value in being energy independent and see the value in fossil fuels, even in nuclear, clean nuclear power. Why don't we? It sure seems like our leaders on the Democrat side of the aisle don't care about any of that and are vying to make the world a much more dangerous place. The dark secrets behind the Green New Deal. I talked to you about the fact that slave labor is used to mine for these rare earth minerals. But it's very, very, very hard to get cameras into those locations to see what those conditions are like. And I want to show you just because when you hear people talking about electric vehicles or you hear Democrats talking about, oh, well, we need, a, we need to support the Green New Deal. The Inflation Reduction Act is the largest investment in, in green energy ever. It's the largest investment in stuff, horrific stuff like this. Roll the Turn it away from evil. Everybody say no Congo, no fun. All my people sing no Congo. I mean, that's horrific. And they said in the end of that video, you know, hey, we need a solution. Well, the solution is allowing America to drill here, to, to, to frack here, 
to explore all the God-given energy that we have right here at our feet and fingertips in this country. I mean, we, we've got natural gas that burns clean. I mean, one natural gas company in Western Pennsylvania, where I'm from, I can have Pennsylvania running on natural gas for 40 years. That's how much we have here. And we're not even talking about the massive producers. This is a middle-level company. We're, we're kneecapping ourselves on purpose. We talked about it being all about control. You certainly certainly feels that way when you listen to, to Democrat leaders talk about it. And then when they start talking about carbon credits, it gets really scary. We're talking about carbon credits, the idea that the government can allocate you a certain number of carbon credits to drive from point A to point B, to take a vacation somewhere, to maybe go eat a steak dinner at a restaurant. And when those carbon credits are up, they're gone. You can't use them anymore. You can't drive on the road anymore. And the gov- there are governments talking about this. It, Michael Evers from Aibaba. It's a it's a it's a company where of course talks about he talks about the technology that they're developing now to track individual carbon footprint. And it's scary as hell. And it's the antithesis of freedom. But listen to what this guy says. Don't believe me. Listen to him. We've taken another step towards a cashless society. A big bank has confirmed customers in some locations can no longer withdraw money over the counter as branches continue to wind back services. It's up there with the pub with no beer, the bank with no cash. ANZ has confirmed some branches no longer handle cash at the counter. Others are directing customers to smart ATMs for cash transactions. The latest figures on ATMs shows the number of machines has more than halved from almost 14,000 back in 2017 to around 6,000 in the middle of last year. For years, cash was king. But not anymore. Hello there. I wondered if you had any change for a fifty dollar note. No, I don't have any cash. <laughs> so that was a cashless society. That's the inevitable end result of carbon credits, and it's unbelievably concerning because it seems like many nations are moving to a cashless society now, and a central bank digital currency, and the way to weave in or woven in with a central bank digital currency is carbon credits. Um, and that was actually the video that we were going to play in the next segment, but we've got the one that we want you to see now, Michael Evans, um, where he talks about the technology that, that they're developing to track your individual carbon footprint. We're developing through technology an ability for consumers to measure their own carbon footprint. What does that mean? That's where are they traveling? How are they traveling? What are they eating? What are they consuming on the platform? So individual carbon footprint tracker. Individual carbon footprint tracker. And that video leads directly into central bank digital currencies, which is what they're talking about in Australia. But but before we get into that, is that the life that you want? Do you want the government tracking everything that you do, every move that you make, every purchase that you that you have? You really want the government tracking those things? I don't think so. You saw in Australia, they've started to implement a cashless society 
And when they talked to people on the streets, hey, do you carry cash? They said, no, I don't really carry cash anymore. It's just not convenient. It's just, ah, it's a pain in the butt to have cash. And that's how they're pushing this on people. This cashless society in a transition to central bank digital currency, when that happens, the death of freedom will be shortly thereafter. Because as we saw during COVID, the way that government used the power of our institutions to lock us down, to force our loved ones to die alone, to force businesses to close, to drain your savings account. It's one of those things like if you don't comply or you speak out, what do you think the government will do if we've got central bank digital currencies? All of a sudden, you can't get your money out. Here's a here's a list of what central bank digital currencies of what the end result will look like for people if we allow that to happen. And by the way, our leaders on the Democrat side of the house, they're talking about doing and implementing this stuff right now. So central bank digital currencies will allow politicians and bankers digital tracking and control of all your spending. Not good. It works like a coupon and voucher. It's not your money. It can only be spent on approved items. So in other words, how does this tie into the segment I just ran about climate change and carbon credits? If you've used all your carbon credits and you're trying to use your central bank digital currency on, say, buying a stake, you won't be allowed to do it because all of these transactions are tracked in real time by the government. Central bank digital currency can be assigned a location in which you may spend, thus limiting your ability to travel. So what's that sound like? That sounds like during the pandemic when they said that you couldn't cross state lines. What if the government said, hey, we're going to lock you down again because climate change is just so scary and that ultraviolet light is so damaging to your skin. So we're just going to make sure that you can't leave you know, your zip code and that your central bank digital currency will only work in that zip code. And if you leave, you got nothing. It limits your ability to save cash for emergencies. It could be confiscated or frozen without due process of the law. Every transaction is recorded forever. There's no anonymity, no garage sales, no swap meets. Now, <laughs> it limits your ability to save for emergencies, and it may be confiscated or frozen without due process of the law. You remember those Canadian truckers? Do you remember what Justin Trudeau did to those Canadian truckers who protested against government overreach and COVID lockdowns that were starving people and crushing people's bank accounts and destroying their supply chains? Do you remember what he did? He seized their bank accounts and he froze their assets. The entire reason why governments are moving to central bank digital currency and they're using your safety and convenience as a means to do it is so that they can control you. It's all woven together. And if you don't believe me that it could actually happen, look at what they did to us during COVID. Had a central bank digital currency been implemented and they had carbon credits out there, it'd been very, it'd be impossible for you to speak out. You would have simply had to comply. And ultimately, that means the death of freedom for all of us, not just one political party, all of us. And if you think this stuff isn't coming to America, it is. You look at this article from TechCrunch. Amazon's palm scanning payment technology is coming to all 500 plus Whole Foods. Amazon's palm scanning payment technology known as Amazon One is prepared to make a significant expansion across the U.S. The retailer announced this morning that the, the payment tech will come to all 500 plus Amazon owned Whole Food market stores nationwide by year end. The biometric payment system works by having the customer hover their palm above a reader 
or device. This device then identifies the individual's unique palm signature, which is then associated with the customer's payment card on file in order to charge them for purchases. So here's the critical difference that I need you all to understand. Bank cards, credit cards, especially like let's say debit cards, they simply ask one question. Do you have the funds to complete the transaction? The central bank digital currency asks a number of questions. Do you have the carbon credits required? Are you allowed to buy this stuff? Are you inside the approved zip zip code? If it's woven in with a social credit score, like has this guy spoken out against the government? Has he gone to a protest that wasn't approved of? All of those things are asked in real time. And if it's no to any one of those questions, you ain't buying what you want to buy. Robert Kennedy talked about this on central bank digital currency about a month ago. And he said, the Fed just announced it will introduce. So this, I was talking about the coming, it's not coming to America, it's here. Our leaders are trying to implement it now. It's critical that you know about it. The Fed just announced it will introduce its Fed now central bank digital currency, CBDC in July. Central bank digital currencies grease the slippery slope to financial slavery and political tyranny. While cash transactions are anonymous, a central bank digital currency will allow the government to surveil all our private financial affairs. The central bank will have the power to enforce dollar limits on our transactions, restricting where you can send money, where you can spend it, and when money expires. A central bank digital currency tied to digital ID and social credit score will allow the government to freeze your assets or limit your spending to approved vendors if you fail to comply with arbitrary dictates, i.e. vaccine mandates. Remember what I said, folks, everything that they did to us during COVID, it's, it's, it's almost like foreshadowing in a book. You can bet that these people are going to do this stuff to us again. And if we don't take a stand and we don't call our political leaders and we don't tell Congress, hey, hell no to central bank digital currencies, we could be living in a dystopian nightmare, the likes of which make the producers of The Walking Dead jealous. You want to see in the in, in Klaus Schwab's own words what he wants for the world? Again, don't believe me. These psychopaths are all talking about their dystopian vision for the world. And they've, they've, some of which is already rolling out and happening here. Most, most of America is not even paying attention. And they're using, again, don't forget, convenience and safety to make this stuff happen. But listen to Klaus Schwab. In this new world, accept une transparence, et je dirais même une transparence totale. Tout va être transparent. Et il faut s'habituer, il faut se comporter ainsi. Ça devient, comment dirais-je, intégré dans votre personnalité, mais voilà. si on n'a rien à cacher, euh, il ne faut pas avoir peur. If you're listening to what that creepy little authoritarian had to say and you're not actually watching and couldn't read the subtitles, I'll read it for you. Klaus Schwab said, in the new world, you have to accept total transparency. It will become part of your personality. Everything will be transparent. If you have nothing to hide, you have no reason to be afraid. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? This guy is like a Bond villain. How about this? You first, Klaus Why don't you show us all of your communications with governments all around the world? Show us all of your communications with World Economic Forum leaders who, according to you, have infiltrated cabinets all over the world. Show us your bank transactions. After all, if you have nothing to hide, 
and you have nothing to fear, right? God, these people are so weird. They're so creepy. They're so crazy. We can't allow these people to have positions of authority over us anymore. And any person that we elect to office has to be opposed to these psychopaths and their authoritarian worldview. Rolling into the home stretch. Last block of the show. We didn't get to it yesterday, but I've got to talk about today. But before I, it's by the way, it's men shattering women's sports records. We're going to get to that in a second. But before we do, please make sure that you hit that little green like button. Rumble, right? Rumble tracks that. Advertisers tracks that. They track that too. You're on this journey with me. We just started this show and it's growing like gangbusters and it's only made possible by your support. So please also subscribe to the page. Go to officialshawnparnell.com. We got Battleground Apparel merch right here. See, never quit, never surrender because that's what it's going to take to save this country. It's a lifestyle brand. We need your help. We, we love having your support. This is a movement that we're building together in conjunction with the Wendy Bell Radio Network. So join the movement. We'd love to have you. Okay. More men shattering women's sports records. So Anne, Anne Andres, so this is a male who identifies and competes as a woman, doesn't understand why female powerlifters, and this is a tweet from Riley Gaines, which is, I just want you to know that. She doesn't understand why female powerlifters are, quote, so bad at bench press. And <laughs> Riley Gaines says, well, I don't know, Ann, but maybe it's because you have 20 times more testosterone than they do. Just a thought. Now, the interesting thing about this is that these, these men who pretend to be women almost always seem to have a very ag- either passive or overt aggression towards women, period. They just they. And, and why else would they dress up like a woman to steal their identity, break all their records? It's certainly not because they respect women. Listen to what he has to say about women and bench pressing and weightlifting. Listen to this. Um, why is women's bench so bad? I mean, not compared to me. We all know that I'm a training freak, so that doesn't count. And no, we're not talking about Mackenzie Lee. She's got little T-Rex arms and she's like 400 pounds of chest muscle, apparently. I mean, standard bench in powerlifting competition for women. I literally don't understand why it's so bad. I mean, nothing but contempt for women competitors who dedicate their entire life to doing this stuff. I mean, now imagine that you're a parent of daughters, and I've got three daughters of four women in my family who outnumber the boys, right? There are three boys and the rest are women. Even the pets got two cats and a dog, all women. Um, But imagine you have daughters who are dedicating their life to a sport, right? Maybe it's swimming and all of junior high and all of, all of high school there, you're waking up early with them. You're bringing them to practice at 5 a.m., five days a week, traveling to meets on the weekend. These girls are dedicating their life to their sport, and they try out for a team in high school, or maybe they're a senior trying out for a college team, you know, some Division I college swim team, and that spot is stolen from them by a man pretending to be a woman. Now, first of all, Never mind how that would make you feel as a parent. If it doesn't absolutely enrage you, you're probably not in the right emotional space. 
But imagine how that feels to that young woman who dedicated her entire life to a craft only to have it stolen from her by a man. Now, the fact that more people aren't speaking up about this kind of stuff is as a tragedy. And I think a lot of it is because we're afraid. America is wholly, I think, by and large, a good place. People don't want to offend other people. We go along to get along. We want to have good relationships. And I understand all that. But like so much of the other stuff that we talk about on this show, you've got to draw a line somewhere. And men pretending to be women, stealing opportunities from your daughters needs to be one of those lines. Now, you would think feminists would be up in arms about this stuff. You know, you would think they'd be saying, wait a second, a man can't be a woman. It's like they can't they're, they're, they, they can't do the things that we do. A man shouldn't be competing against women in sports. They're bigger. They're faster. They're stronger. Hell, it's dangerous. I mean, there are even stories of of men pretending to be women fighting in in mixed martial arts and really seriously hurting women. There's I saw another story about a man pretending to be a woman playing ice hockey and he checks a woman up against the board and really seriously hurts her, gives her a serious concussion. So you think feminists would be up in arms about it. But what kind of bothers me a little bit is that I think that as men, we have to speak up about it too. You know, if if it's not necessarily speaking up for the adults and, and other women per se, but the, the young women who are participating in these sports, many of them believe it's unfair. Many of them are afraid to speak up. And if they do, you look at what they're doing to Riley Gaines. They're hunting her down. They're tracking her down. They're physically intimidating her. They're, they would physically assault her if, if possible, if they could. And we're just letting these young women who are courageous enough to come forward and talk about this stuff and say, wait a second, this isn't fair. I don't want to compete. You know, a lot of these young women are afraid to do that. And I think the reason they're afraid to do this, obviously, they're afraid of the condemnation that will come with it publicly from the media. But maybe they would be less afraid if people, if grownups, if adults, if men spoke up with them to make sure that they didn't have to go through this stuff alone. I don't know. We'll see. This this woman that I was talking about, this 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 uh, this man who's pretending to be a woman who's a weightlifter. Like obviously, men can lift more weight than women. Why the hell this guy is enrolling in women's powerlifting competitions is beyond me. One can only assume he has utter contempt for women and all of their records because of again, of course, a man is stronger. But look at this. Look at this video after. So I want you to see this. So this guy. Ann Andres, I don't know his actual name, entered a women's division of the Western Canadian Powerlifting Championships. The result was a massacre. The second place finisher, an actual female, got a combined score across three lifts of 387 kilograms. Ann, the man, beat her by more than 200 kilograms, more than 400 pounds. This isn't equality or fairness. It's a sick joke to enable mentally ill cheaters to humiliate women. That from Charlie Kirk. But I want you to see this video because there's something really important I want to talk to you about. Why aren't those women that are on the podium with him pissed? Why are people clapping for this? 
that man stole a first place finish from one of those women who dedicated their entire life to that. Why? I get it that it that it's tough to take a stand. We talked about like these young women being afraid to take a stand because of the the contempt. But women across all sports in every sport should just refuse to compete against this stuff against men. They should. They should band together and refuse to compete. And these athletic boards and and the Olympics refuse to let men compete against women. It's unfair to them. An alarming trend of the number of LGBTQ identifying adults is soaring. The new statistics say one in five Gen Z identifies as LGBTQ. Now, that that's staggering to me. Now, I want you to go through this with me. Traditionalists, the generation that are considered traditionalists, people who were born before 1946, 0.8% identify as LGBTQ by 2021, okay? This is from Axios. Hardly a conservative publication, but the research is the research. Baby boomers who were born between 1946 and 1964, 2.6% of them are LGBTQ. They identify as LGBTQ, element of P. Gen Z, 1965 to 1980, 4.2%. Millennials, 1981 to 1996, 10.5%. Gen Z, born in 1997 to 2003, 20.8%. So one in five Gen, Gen Z. Something is happening here. You would think that this article would address that, but when you read the entire thing, it really doesn't. The only, the only thing that they say about why this trend is increasing is one bullet point. But I think it's actually one of the most important questions that we have to ask. And they say this, kids are growing up now in a very different environment. Well, that, 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 that much is true. He said that adding LGBTQ young adults, he said, he said that adding the LGBTQ young adults are much more likely because of their environment to acknowledge that and to accept that compared to people in the past who were in a similar situation. In other words, it's just we're just more welcoming today. But I think that misses a really critical component of all of this, and that is that clearly some of this phenomenon of a trans movement in our, in our children is, is some sort of social contagion. Children see that being non-binary, that being bi, that being trans garners them attention, and that that phenomena is contagious and makes other children want to do that as well. And, and this is a problem, particularly among young girls who are very impressionable with stuff like this. And if you don't believe me, just look at some of the stuff they're teaching in our schools. They've got porn in our schools. I mean, and this is not an overstatement. They are pushing this radical, hypersexualized agenda on our children at a very young age to, to, to groom them. And there's no other word but to groom them into this, this community. And if you look at this article from Fox News, this is a perfect example. This is a feminist medical school professor says that trans kids identifying as minotaurs are part of a gender revolution. Now, minotaurs, like something out of Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief. Now, this is a woman who's in med school pushing this propaganda on med students. Like, what hope do high schoolers and elementary schoolers have when they're pushing this garbage in med school? So Diane 
Ernsaft, a self-identified feminist who supports gender revolution, is the director of mental health and chief psychologist at UCSF Beinhoff Children's Hospital Gender Development Center. So this is a woman that that is clearly off the rails. And I'm trying to find this part in the article because I want to read this to you. She introduced language such as gender fluid, non-binary, and gender expansive. She then predicted the language will evolve even beyond that and cited her conversation with a seven-year-old as proof that there can be gender minotaurs and hybrids. As you know, language is political, so what's good today will be politically incorrect tomorrow, so we'll just keep changing as we go. No, no, no. Kids Kids are confused enough. Think back to when you were a kid or you were an adolescent. It was not easy. There are all sorts of pressures that young kids are under, whether it's peer pressure, whether it's pressure uh, from academics, whether it's pressure in sports, maybe you've got problems at home. Finding yourself is a critical part of that. And this woman says, this woman who believes in gender minotaurs says, well, hey, you know, genders can change with the season. You know, maybe gender gender minotaur one year, you know, maybe you're by the next year. Well, If you admit that, then why are you allowing these children to undergo permanent surgeries that deform their body for the rest of their life? Changes they can never reverse. Why are you giving them puberty blockers if you yourself acknowledge that you could be a gender minotaur one year and then a mermaid and then buy the next? If you acknowledge that those changes can occur in young children, then why are you allowing them to go through these horrific surgeries? Or take puberty blockers in the first place. We've lost our damn minds. And Rachel Levine praises gender clinic pushing biological sex revisionism, preferring referring to moms as egg producer. Referring to mothers as egg producer. I'm sorry, but this makes me so, so, so mad. Because I truly believe that women are, are special. Now, I've talked a great many times about how I I personally believe that men and women are created in God's image, not to compete against one another, but to lift one another up, to challenge one another, to make each other better. We each have, we're we're each created in God's image to, to do very specific things. And one of those things that women do that not, not, they, they can create life and they can bring life into this world. And that makes them special. And the fact that we're eroding that away and just saying, you know, even Rich Levine, who is the PA health secretary here, don't forget, this is the this is the person who removed her mother from a nursing home as COVID, as she knew that COVID would ravage nursing homes to save her mother, but leave all the other old folks to die. Yeah, th- this person. She's saying that we should call n- no more use the term mother, egg producers. I mean, I- I'm sorry. I don't know of any other way to see that as being an unbelievable insult to women who are are walking miracles and create life every day. I don't care if you're a man pretending to be a woman, you will never have a baby. Your skeleton will always be different. <laughs> like your biology will always be different. Now again, I I don't if you're a, a grown-up and you want to be trans, you want to be you want to pretend that you're a woman, you want to do that stuff, that's completely fine with me. You live your life, I'll live mine. But don't expect me to step into your fairy tale land. Don't expect me to live in your delusion 
And you sure as hell better keep that stuff away from my kids because they don't need that confusion in their lives. It was real interesting about this is that the Target posted their first quarterly revenue miss in six years. And they cited inflation. The CEO cited inflation and consumer boycott. So my point is, I think that the vast majority of Americans are tired of this stuff and they're making their voices heard and they're not spending dollars at companies that they know despise them. Let's go ahead and roll this tape. Target earnings just crossing the tape. Courtney Reagan is here with the numbers. Court. Yeah, Melissa, so let's get through this. There's a lot here. Target second quarter earnings coming in at $1.80 per share. That's 41 cents above consensus. But the profit was not driven by sales. Revenue at $24.77 billion, below $25.16 billion estimated. Also slashing full year earnings guidance. This even after this quarter's huge beat. So it's now expecting between $7 and $8. That's down from $7.75 to $8.75. It's also bringing down its sales expectations to mid-single-digit declines rather than low-single-digit decline to low-single-digit increase. Target's comparable sales down 5.4%. That is well below estimates for a 3.7% drop, also the first decrease since 2016. The retailer says discretionary categories again weak, while food, beverage, essentials, beauty, those frequency categories, those were stronger. Digital sales down 10.5%. That's the third straight quarter of declines and the worst performance since Target has been giving this number. Inventory fell 17 percent and lower markdowns did help to lift gross margins. Operating margins also better than expected. But at 4.8 percent, that's about half of the level where it was two years ago at 9.8 percent. On a call with media, Target CEO Brian Cornell pointed to macro pressures, including inflation, for tempering sales, but also, quote, negative guest reaction to our pride collection. He also continued to say negative reaction to our pride assortment and added after adjusting mid-quarter to address safety concerns, the business recovered steadily in July. I asked Cornell to clarify that the response by some consumers to the pride merchandise was material enough that it impacted sales. But then after Target removed some of the merchandise or moved it in some stores, the trends changed. He said, quote, you describe it very accurately. We only took actions in the month of June. We wanted to make sure we're focused on the safety of our teams and the safety of our guests. Once we took those actions and addressed the situation, we certainly saw things normalize. Now, the last time Target's comp sales were negative, as I mentioned, was six years ago. And that does correspond to the four quarters that followed the retailer's stance, allowing guests to use whatever bathroom they choose for their gender identity. The Target did say at the time that any lost sales from those boycotts weren't material enough to report. This time, though, they're calling it out, just not quantifying it. It's just, again, seemingly caught in the middle of these culture wars in a way that did seem to impact sales. People are tired of this stuff. Look at what happened to Budweiser. Bud Light sales completely tanked. Look at what's happening to Target. Your voice matters. Your voice, you can have a, you can make a huge impact, even one person. But when you got millions of people saying, standing up and saying, no, you will not steal these experiences from my children. By the way, it's not about pride. Target had pride stuff on display that was specifically geared for trans minors. And oh, by the way, all of their pride stuff was braided with stuff with Satan and the devil on it. I mean, they even had shirts that said Satan or Lucifer is is has pride. You're damn right we're opposed to that here in this country. Keep that stuff away from our kids. Again, you're over 18. Wear that stuff all you want. 
but keep that stuff away from our children. And by the way, I don't know why having pride in your sexuality or your sexual identity has to involve Satan or marching around naked in parades where men's genitalia are in the faces of young kids. Why does that correlate with your, your celebrating pride? I don't know, but Americans are tired of it. And we're not going to stand, we're not going to stand for it anymore. And so that's it, folks. That's it. That's all we got. That's all she wrote. My notes are done. Thank you for tuning in to, to Battleground Live. It's our third episode, and we're so grateful to have you here. Don't forget, subscribe to the channel. Hit that rumble like button. Go get your Battleground Apparel merch. Uh, this is a show. It's a movement because of you. Don't forget, never quit. Never surrender. God bless you all. And God bless this amazing country that we live in. Take care. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening.